Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our lead pastor, Mike Wiggins, for the message, Transformed Through Trials. All right, so when a person hears the gospel, we're talking the true gospel of grace. When they hear the gospel and then they respond to it genuinely in repentance and faith, something wonderful happens in the life of that person. There's actually lots of things, I'm just gonna name two. Number one, God in heaven declares, that's an important word, God declares that that person is righteous because of their faith. Not their self-righteousness, not them earning heaven, you can't earn heaven. We're talking about being clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that happens, but then also, Number two, God sends his Holy Spirit to come, the third person of the Trinity, to actually come and live inside of us for life. And that is an amazing truth as well. And so God does two things. He justifies us, and then he starts the sanctification process. And so as I taught you before, through justification, we are saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. Christ took care of it on the cross. The moment we repentantly believe in Jesus Christ. I want you to notice it's the moment that we repentantly believe. This is genuine conversion. It's, it's when we're born again, right? Now sanctification, different term. It's we are being saved, it's a process, from not the penalty of sin that's already been taken care of, but look at this, we are being saved from the power of sin. Progressively, as we yield, very important term, yield or submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Really want you to understand those two terms, it's Christianity 101, but you need this for a solid foundation as you continue to grow. And so justification has to do with our position, we are forgiven, and sanctification has to do with our practice, we are bearing fruit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Justification has to do with our standing. We are children of God. Nothing can ever change that. Sanctification has to do with our daily submission to our Father as his kids. I said all that to say that 1 Peter chapter four is all about sanctification. And it leads us to this question. What's the goal, right? What is the goal of sanctification? And the answer is right here. The goal of this lifelong process of being set apart for Christ is Christ-likeness. Not just outwardly, but inwardly as well. And so through this lifelong process of sanctification, the Holy Spirit within us slowly but surely is transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. But we have to cooperate. Can you guys say the word cooperate? Can you say the word yield? Can you say the word submit? All very important terms as you talk about sanctification. And so we have to cooperate, we have to yield, and as we yield to the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, what does he do? He changes us inwardly and outwardly. So inwardly, he begins to change our thoughts and our attitudes and our motives and our desires, even our desires begin to change. And not only that, but outwardly, he begins to change our speech and our behavior, our language and our lives, our walk and our talk. 
It's a beautiful thing that God does, this work of God in us called sanctification. Again, 1 Peter chapter four is all about sanctification. And as we discuss this topic, we have to realize this. So right now, if you're listening to me, can you say amen? amen? All right, so one of the ways that God sanctifies us is through suffering. And one of the ways God transforms us is through trials. So as we consider 1 Peter chapter four, sanctification sometimes means suffering and transformation sometimes means trials. Okay, so newsflash, everybody. Have you noticed this? We live in a fallen world. Okay, you can see it every day with the headlines. We live in a fallen world, a world that is filled with trials and tribulations and sufferings and setbacks, problems, right, and pain. And so what I've noticed is this, that the way people respond to the difficulties that they encounter has a way of changing them in the core of their being. The way you choose to respond to trials that will come into your life will absolutely change you at the core of your being, either for the good or for the bad. And it's our choice. And how we choose to deal with difficulty is gonna determine whether we get bitter or whether we get better, right? And so some people, they experience these difficult trials and they, they respond in a negative way with a negative attitude. And their attitude is like, you know, how in the world can there be a good God if I'm experiencing all of this? I look on the world and I see all the suffering and all the pain and I know exactly what I'm experiencing in my life. And so I don't believe God exists. Or if he does exist, he probably doesn't even care. And what do they do? They respond to their trials and difficulty in a negative way and they get bitter. By the way, just the fact that they admit that there's imperfection in the world cries out for God, the existence of God. Right, because you can't have a concept of imperfection unless you have a concept of perfection to compare with imperfection in order to derive a definition for imperfection. And so the perfect one is God. Some people, they experience trials and troubles and difficulty and suffering. And I know a lot of them are in this church and I'm so blessed by them because they respond to their difficulty with a positive attitude. Their attitude is this, and some, some people in this church, they're going through hard times. And their attitude is this, hey, you know what? This is hard, and I don't necessarily like it, but I know God is real. And I know that God is omnipotent, and he's omnibenevolent, he's omnipotent, that means he's all powerful, and he's omnibenevolent, he's all good. And I also know God is sovereign, and that he's my father, and when I can't trace his hand, I can trust his heart, and he loves me, and I know that he's gonna use this difficulty in order to mold me more into the image of Jesus Christ, and they respond to their trial in a positive way, and guess what, they don't get bitter, they actually get better. It's a beautiful thing the way some people respond to the difficulties of life. Hey guys, we're not home yet, this is not heaven, let's just deal with it. And so the bottom line is this, committed Christians allow God to transform them through their trials for the better. And what I just did is I gave you the theme of 1 Peter chapter four. 
It's a monumental theme, and it's a monumental chapter, so it's gonna take us two weeks to get through chapter four, but I'm ready to dig in. Are you guys ready to, to dig in? All right, so if you're looking at 1 Peter 4, 1, say amen. amen. Okay, so here we go. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as we consider being transformed through trials, we should be willing to, number one, suffer in God's will. Just need to deal with it, we gotta accept it. Right, because listen, it's the little kids in the nursery, when they don't get their way, stomp their feet, scream, and throw themselves on the ground, have temper tantrums, but guess what? Everybody, God has called us spiritually to get out of the nursery and grow up and be adults. And so what does that mean? We just gotta accept it. Now I'm certainly not talking to people who make a series of bad choices disobeying God and all of a sudden they're in a lot of trouble and they're crying out. That's a different sermon for a different time. I'm talking to people who love the Lord, you're following the Lord, and you're just getting smacked in the face with the trials and troubles of life. Well guess what, we just gotta suffer in God's will. And I know a lot of people don't like the topic. A lot of people would just rather come to church and hear a, a message, a positive message on how they can be healthy and wealthy and materially prosperous. But if that's you, there's two problems with your thinking. Number one, your thinking is not biblical. And number two, your thinking is very self-centered. God does not exist to make us healthy, wealthy, and materially prosperous. He's God. We're his servants. It's not about our will. It's about his will. And by the way, in my Palm Sunday message, I exposed some of the false teachings given by some of the so-called prosperity preachers or preachers like them. I encourage you to go back, if you missed it, and listen to the Palm Sunday message. But again, let's look at what God says in his word. Look again at verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered, he's writing to Christians, so Christians suffer. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. All right, so regarding this verse, Dr. Charles Ryrie wrote, the thought is this, Christ suffered in the flesh, he's your example, so arm yourselves by taking the same view of suffering as Christ took, which is what? To accept it in the will of God. And so while in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus faced his impending passion and his death, what did he do? He fell on his face, he cried out to his father. He said, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, I love this attitude. Not as I will, but as you will. All right, so answer out loud. Was it the father's will for Christ to suffer? Yeah. And so Peter just said it in black and white in verse one that we need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Why? Because for us, sanctification sometimes means suffering and transformation sometimes means trials. Just ask Job. How many of you guys have read the first two chapters of Job? Raise, raise your hand, you know, right? This is a godly guy. And what happens? He loses everything. And how does he respond in the middle of his fiery trial? 
I love it. He says, God knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I'm gonna come forth as gold. I love that attitude. And so Job was determined that no matter how hot it got in the fire of God's refining fire, he was not going to jump out prematurely and run away. No, he's gonna stay in as long as it takes for God to do something, do God's work in his life so that he could come forth as gold. So God knows the way that we take as well. He's your sovereign father. He's your daddy if you know Jesus through repentance and faith. He loves you. I mean, think about the best father who's ever lived on planet Earth and the love that the father has for his kid and times it by a billion zillion and there you have God's love for you. You're his kid and of course he knows the way you take and of course he, can, he, he knows you're hurting right now and in pain and trouble and he wants you to respond the right way. He knows the way that you take and he's sovereign, he's in control. I want you to see what Paul said to the, to the Romans. This is one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. It's very appropriate for our, our study today. Paul, writing to the Christians in Rome, he says, we know, all right, there's no ifs, ands, buts about it. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so all things means all things. That includes fiery trials and difficulties and pain. And so that means that the pain that you already went through or that trial that you're going through now or the pain you're gonna go through in the future, all of it is working together for two things. What? God's glory and for your good. And you just gotta know that. You gotta accept that. You gotta believe that. You gotta stop listening to the lies of the devil who wants you to walk away from church, wants you to walk away from the Lord, wants you to stomp your feet or cross your hands or throw yourself on the ground and have a temper tantrum. He wants you to take those thoughts captive and replace them and make them obedient to Christ. And he wants you to memorize Romans 8, 28 and keep saying it and saying it and saying it until it goes from your head to your heart to your feet. And so when God puts you in the refiner's fire, don't be afraid. Don't run away. Be like Job. Be determined. I'm gonna stay in here as long as it takes. Until I come forth as gold, God, just do whatever you wanna do. I'm your servant, make me like Jesus. If you live like that, if I live like that, we're gonna show our commitment, listen, to God's will and not our own which includes, end of verse one, a turning away from sin. Did you guys see that? All right, so please look at verse one again, halfway down. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The idea here is if you're committed to God's will, in spite of your suffering, no matter what happens, you're gonna keep following the Lord you're showing your commitment to make a clean break from sin. You're showing your commitment, I'm gonna follow God's will over my own will, and I am going to stop sinning. Now, of course, no one reaches sinless perfection, this side of heaven, but we certainly can have that commitment in our hearts to keep turning away from sin, right? Yeah, thank you, two of you. So appreciate it. So whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, verse two flows, keep it in the context, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
not our will, his will. Verse three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality or passions or drunkenness or orgies or drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And so as we think about this topic of being transformed through trials, we should be willing to, number two, die to our old life. We're talking true Christian conversion here. Die to our old life and embrace our new life. Now, Peter just said in verses two and three that the time is past for indulging the sinful passions, right, of sensuality and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatries. Peter shouting from the rooftops, hey, Christian community, those days are over. Those are your BC days. Don't live that way. Somebody says, why? Just wanna have some fun, right? Leave me alone. Well, here's why Paul told us, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, all's become new. That's why. And if you want people to leave you alone so you can go do your drinking parties and engage in sensuality and engage in the party scene, you really need to check to see if you're really saved. And so the new life that Peter's talking about is illustrated in Christian baptism, which we saw last week in our Easter message, all right? So in chapter three, verses 20 and 21, you remember this, but it's so good, we're gonna review it, and it fits in what we're talking about here. And so in chapter three, verses 20 and 21, Peter likened Noah and the ark and the flood to Christian baptism. He said, when Noah and his family entered the ark, okay, so again, picture it in your mind, big boat, right? Sinful, corrupt world, every thought of man's heart's only evil continually. God's gonna judge, because he's a God of justice. He wants to keep a remnant, Noah and his family. They're getting ready to get on the boat. What are they doing? They're turning away from the sin and corruption of the world, and they're entering the ark. What does that mean? That means they're dying to the world. Likewise, when we enter Christ through repentance and faith, we say goodbye to the world with his sin and corruption, we die to the world. You guys see the, the comparison there? And just as the ark brought Noah and his family from an old world to a new world, an old life to a new life, a brand new start, so when we enter the ark of Christ, he brings us from that old life to that new life and a brand new start. And so baptism illustrates all of this. It's a beautiful, beautiful figure. It's a beautiful um, antitype of the type of Noah and the ark and the flood. And it's the first step of obedience in the Christian life. And so if you have not been baptized since, can you guys say the word since? Because infant baptism is not in the New Testament. Okay, and so always baptism follows giving your life to Christ. If you haven't been baptized since you gave your life to Jesus Christ, May 6th is coming, first Thursday service is coming. I love our first Thursday services. It's so cool. We have um, worship and we have devotion, devotional and communion and then baptism. And so you can be part of that. I wanna encourage you to go to our website, calvarypsl.com, 
click on next steps, click on, I mean, go, go, uh, scroll down to get baptized, click on that green box. Somebody on Andrew, Pastor Andrew Webb's team will give you a call, but man, make your, prof- your public profession of faith that you're done with the old life and you're now raised in newness of life with Jesus Christ. Verse four. And so again, we gotta get the flow and the context. He's talking about the BC days, the way the Gentiles live, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Verse four, he says, with respect to this, they, that's your unsaved or lost family members and friends who knew you in your BC days. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. That stuff that he just named in verse three. And they malign you, they speak evil of you. But, verse five, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And so as we consider being transformed through trials, we also need to be willing, number three, to stand out as a Christian. To stop trying to fit in. To stop trying to please everybody. To stop tiptoeing around issues. I'm not saying you, know, you gotta be a jerk or get in someone's face, but listen, you gotta let your light shine. You're the light of the world. This is the hope right here because you guys have the gospel of Jesus. And I do too, we gotta let the light shine. And here's what's gonna happen though, that when you take that bright flashlight and you shine it in someone's eyes in the middle of the night, some people are gonna get irritated. Why? Because John said men love darkness rather than light. And you just being around them is gonna convict them of their sin. And so one of the results of the change that Christ does is that there's this loss of appetite for all the junk that Peter just wrote about in verse three. There's a loss of appetite for the party scene, the party life, and so you're no longer wanting to be part of that scene, but people who knew you in your BC days, now all of a sudden Peter says, well they're surprised. Why aren't you joining us? and some of them will actually malign you or speak evil of you. Now, most of them will do it behind your back, and we've all been subject to that. But some of them who are bold, they're gonna malign you right to your face. We gotta have thick skin. You know, it's amazing to me that when someone gets saved and they stop partying, they stop getting drunk, they stop sleeping around, how family and friends, lost family and friends, they think this person in our family has gone nuts, right? They're crazy, they're religious fanatics. Oh, Mr. Goody Two Shoes, you know, doesn't wanna party with us anymore. Oh, he got religion, so he's too good for us now. And right, they'll say all this stuff. But here's what's amazing to me. Aunt Allison, who gets plastered every weekend, and cousin Craig, who smokes weed every day, and nephew Nick, who brags about looking at porn, they're all considered the normal ones in the family, but you're the weirdo, because you got Jesus. Isn't it amazing, right? And so here's the sobering part, though. 
Look at verse five. He says, they will, no ifs, ands, buts about it, they will give an account to God who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They can laugh all they want now, but judgment day is coming. And Paul describes it like this. This is 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter one. He says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Okay, so when's God gonna right the wrongs? When's he gonna judge? When's God gonna take his vengeance as a just God? Here it is, three lines down, right-hand side. When, not if, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. How many of you guys believe he's really coming back? Right, it's gonna happen. Whether you like it or not, deny it or not, it's gonna happen. You might as well get prepared for it. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Some people were uncomfortable last week on Easter that I would talk about hell. But here, it's, it's all over the Bible, guys. And so if you go to a church and they never talk about hell, go to a real church. Right, that talks about heaven and hell. Because they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So the next time somebody maligns you for not joining them in all the wild things that they're doing, just remember the Lord's coming back and he will reward you for taking a stand as a Christian but he's gonna judge them for choosing their sin over the Savior. But I, I don't want you to miss the heart here. It's so easy to go from this topic to a Pharisaical attitude, okay? So if you're listening to me, say amen here. Okay, so here's what you gotta do. In the meantime, pray for them because you and I were just like they were. And we certainly didn't get saved because of our good works. We got saved by grace. So keep praying for them because as long as they have breath in their lungs, there's still an opportunity for them to give their lives to Jesus Christ and then they can be changed and then they can be a weirdo with you as well, okay? And so just keep praying for them. It's so important, you gotta get that attitude. Otherwise, you know, we become these self-righteous people and that is not the heart of Jesus. Okay, so look at verse six now. You gotta, again, get, keep it in this context and the flow. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about final judgment. And he says in verse six, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. All right, so everybody look at me real quick. I gotta clear up this because some people will take this verse and they say, there's a second chance even for people who have already died to hear the gospel and to believe and be saved. That is not true. Don't listen to everything you hear and don't, definitely don't get your theology from Google. Okay, we use scripture to interpret scripture and the scripture is very clear in Hebrews. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this is the judgment. There are no second chances. All of our first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth chances are why we have breath in our lungs. But when you take that last breath, you, last heartbeat, there's no more chances. Okay, so it can't mean that, 
So what does it mean? You know, some people equate this with Jesus going down into Abraham's bosom and preaching to the Old Testament saints who were saved to share the rest of the story, the gospel. And you know, that, that interpretation is accepted within Orthodox Christianity, but I don't think it fits the context. So verse six says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are, the idea here is, now dead. In other words, they were alive, they heard the gospel, they gave their life to Jesus, but then something happened to them. What's that? Rest of the verse. That though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so the idea here in the context of suffering and persecution and final judgment is that these people were judged in the flesh. What does that mean? They were persecuted the way people are, but now they're living in the spirit. What does that mean? They were persecuted unto death. And so Peter, I believe, is speaking about Christian martyrs. So as we talk about this topic of transformed through trials, we have to be willing, verse four, to accept persecution. And now, obviously, we live in the United States of America where we have the freedom of religion. And so I hope this doesn't happen in our lifetime, but it could. But we have to even accept, if it ever comes to this, martyrdom. Now in the context, again, suffering, persecution, final judgment, Peter's reminding his readers of the martyrs who gave their lives for Christ. I like getting a little help from our friends, and so guys who've been doing this a lot longer than me, Chuck Swindoll said this about verse six. He said, the history of the church provides numerous examples of believers whose new lives in Christ led to harsh treatment and threats and persecution and imprisonment and sometimes even, what's the word? Death. And so verse six addresses the reality of those believers known to Peter's readers who had given their lives for the gospel. And so once again, in case you're confused, they were alive, they heard the gospel, they genuinely turned to Christ in repentance and faith, got saved, and then they began to live out their faith, active as Christians, shining that light, not everybody likes the light, and so some lost people falsely judged them and put them to death as martyrs. But the good news is that since they belong to Jesus, even though their bodies were burned or beaten, right, or stabbed or fed to wild animals, their spirits lived on with God forever in heaven. Absent from the body means to be present with who? The Lord. I think that's the correct meaning here. And by the way, did you know that the author of 1 Peter was a martyr for the Christian faith? He gave his life for Jesus Christ. Did you guys know that Jesus told Peter he would be a martyr? Way back in John chapter 21, we think AD 33. When did Peter die? Not until the mid-60s. So for some 30 years, right, Jesus tells him in John 21, the resurrected Christ, in so many words, that he's gonna be martyred. 
that they're gonna kill him, right? It's kinda like, thanks a lot, Jesus, for the good news. And Peter had that looming over his head for some 30 years, that he would one day give his life as a martyr for Jesus Christ, but guess what? You gotta love Pete, because he never once backed down, he never once gave in, he never once denied Jesus Christ. He went to his death proclaiming Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. I love that. And so in his book, More Than a Carpenter, got it right here, Josh McDowell says this. He said, I can trust the apostles' testimonies because 11 of those men died martyrs' deaths. Where does he get 11? Well, there's 12 apostles. Judas committed suicide. He didn't die as a martyr. John, we believe, um, just grew old and died of natural causes. He didn't die of a martyr. That leaves 10, but who's number 11? Paul, exactly. So 11, 11 of those men died martyrs' deaths because they stood for two truths, Christ's deity and his resurrection. These men were tortured and flogged and most, most finally suffered death by some of the cruelest methods then known. Um, he also says in his book, although the New Testament does not record the death of these men, and by the way, the New Testament does record the death of James, son of Zebedee, brother of John, in Acts chapter 12, Herod killed James as a martyr, but he says that although the New Testament does not record the deaths of these men, historical sources and long-standing tradition confirm the nature of their deaths. And so as they faced persecution and death, all these uh, uh, disciples had to say was, hey, wait a minute, Roman soldier, wait a minute. You know, I know you're over there in the corner sharpening your two-edged sword, but I need to tell you something. We made it all up. You see, Jesus really isn't God and we really didn't see him alive after he was dead, so please stop beating us and please don't kill us. That's all they had to say, right? All they had to say was, Caesar is Lord. And they all would have been set free. That's not what they did. Those who died martyrs' death, deaths went to their grave proclaiming Christ is Lord and Jesus is risen. That's what they did. And so, I'm gonna get into a little bit of apologetics here and then we'll continue on, but the fact that the disciples were willing to die for their faith is evidence that the Christian faith is true. And don't believe the nonsense that all the world religions are all true, there's just different paths to one God. False. There's a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. One way, Jesus. One way to the Father, Jesus, God accept that. And so as we think about this, the fact that the disciples were willing to die for their faith is evidence that the Christian faith is true. And you might say, well wait a minute, there's people from all different religions who are religious fanatics and zealots and all of them, a lot of them are, worthy, are, are, are willing to die martyrs' deaths for their brand of faith. So what makes these Christian disciples any different? Right? Once a religious fanatic, always a religious fanatic. And so here, we're getting into apologetics. I wanna help you out in case you're ever having that conversation with your skeptical friend so you know how to answer them. Now the obvious answer, because some people will say this, they'll say, wait a minute, some radical Muslims believe that if they die as martyrs, they're immediately going to paradise. And look at the 9-11 terrorists. 
They believed as they flew the planes into the buildings that on the other side of their death, there were 72 virgins waiting for them. Okay, and so what's the difference, pastor? Religious fanatics are religious fanatics. Well, the obvious difference between the 9-11 terrorists and the apostles of Jesus Christ is that these guys committed suicide while murdering hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, the apostles were arrested for their faith and they were beaten and they were put to death. Those who died martyrs' deaths. Okay, so there's a big obvious difference, but I wanna go a little deeper with you and I wanna give you this apologetic principle that people may be willing to die for what they believe to be true, but nobody's gonna die for a known lie. Nobody. Nobody in history dies for a known lie. In other words, when religious radicals die for their religious beliefs, they're dying for what they believe is true. These guys really believe 72 virgins were waiting for them. But the disciples, no, they actually said, we saw Jesus alive after they put him to death on the cross. Over 500 of them, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and most of them, over 250, were alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first Christian creed. We saw, you just go knock on their door, first century skeptic, and they'll look you in the eye. We saw Jesus alive after he had been dead. And so if they made it up, if they made up the resurrection, then those who died martyrs' deaths, they suffered and died for what they knew was a bold-faced lie, and that never happens. There's no way you're gonna die for a bold-faced lie. And so Peter brought up those who died as martyrs in verse six to encourage his readers who are currently experiencing persecution. All right, so he's saying, hey, everybody that I'm writing to, I want you to know this, that if your persecution turns into martyrdom, stay strong, it's okay, because just like these martyrs gave their lives and now they're living forever as spirits, Right, and we know from other parts of the Bible that they're gonna be res their body's gonna be resurrected from the dead. Guess what? You, you could be martyred. They can kill your body, but they will not kill your soul. Your soul's been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Now, before I leave this topic, I want to just say, in case you haven't noticed, that our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to people like you and me. Have you guys noticed this? There's a level of hostility that I've never seen in my 54 years. So I got saved when I was 17 years old and I've been actively following the Lord and there's always been pushback and there's always been you know, um, people who are against you but I've never seen hostility to this level now. And so here's what you need to know since you're part of a Bible believing and Bible teaching church that when we actually teach the Bible, I'm not talking about giving what sounds a lot like self-help messages, right? But when you actually teach through the Bible and you proclaim its affirmation for marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman, when you actually teach the Bible and you share the Bible's affirmation that sex was created by God and is a gift of God to only be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, it's exactly what the Bible teaches. So no sex before you're married, no sex after you're married with someone who's not your spouse. Sex is a beautiful gift of God, but it's for a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. When you actually say that, 
and teach that from the Bible, when you actually teach the Bible's affirmation that all human life is precious, the sanctity of human life, including the life of the unborn, you actually say that, when you actually say that God assigns gender in the womb and we're not supposed to change it, because I think God knows what he's doing, when we teach the Bible and proclaim that it's, the Bible is against the modern sexual revolution, that anything goes and the killing of babies through abortion is wrong, okay, so we actually say these things because the Bible teaches these things, guess what, we're gonna get some hostility. And so our, our mind, and it is increasing, and so our mindset has got to be this, that no matter what happens, persecution, suffering, people coming against us, whatever, that, that, that we're not gonna stop loving people so much to stop giving them the truth. We gotta keep loving people enough because listen, love is not just agreeing with whatever they wanna do. Love is sharing God's truth. You speak the truth in love, why? Because if somebody doesn't know something is a sin, they're never gonna repent, and if you don't repent, you're not gonna get saved. So the most loving thing that you can do is to share the word of God and share that the gospel is a gospel of grace, but we need to turn to Christ, turn away from our sins, and turn to Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And so, this is the message. And as we are the victims of increasing hostility, don't forget Jesus' words, that in the world you're gonna have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So we're gonna read verses seven through 11 and just make a few comments and I'll be done this afternoon. But Peter says now in verse seven, and by the way, let me just say this, not in the notes, but if there's anybody here and you're under conviction right now because of what Peter's saying in the text, the worst thing you can do is put a wall up and walk out here and keep living the same lifestyle. You got to repent. God will be there with open arms and absolutely change your life. He says in verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. Okay, so Peter, James, Paul, John, all the apostles, they believed in the eminent coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour except my Father in heaven, right? But these guys, they believed it was gonna happen in their lifetime. I think every generation needs to have this hope that Jesus could come today. He says, therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So be praying people. Verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So keep praying for people, keep loving each other. Verse nine is very practical, by the way. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In other words, open your house for a life group, stop complaining about it. <laughs> Verse 10, don't you love how practical the Bible is? As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So pray for each other, love each other, serve each other as good stewards of God's very great, varied grace. He says, whoever speaks, guys like me, right? Uh, teachers, pastors, evangelists, life group leaders. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. You guys see why I'm constrained? I have to teach God's word? 
I can't just teach self-help messages. I gotta teach the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And so as we consider being transformed through trials, last point, we have to be willing, number five, to pray for, love, and serve each other. And so that's what, that's what Peter said. He said in verse seven, pray for each other. Verse eight, love each other. Verse 10, serve each other and do it all. Verse 11, for the glory of God. Now, I'm out of time, so I'm just gonna talk briefly about love and then we'll be done. There's a misconception in our culture that love is this you know, warm, ooey-gooey feeling that we have for someone special. And there's nothing wrong with the warm, ooey-gooey feeling, right? That's not true love. All right, so what's true love? True love is not a feeling. It is a choice to act for the good of someone else. You see that? I'm giving you a New Testament definition of love. It's not a feeling. It's a choice to act for the good of someone else. What does that mean? Married couples, if you're here or you're watching online, and you can relate to that song, right? You lost that love and feeling? Oh, that love and feeling? You need to know that it's not a feeling. It's a choice to act for the good of someone else. And if you keep doing that, guess what? The feelings are gonna come back. Thank God for ooey gooey feelings, but that's not true love. You say, where do you get that from, Pastor? 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, right? And so here's the definition of love. Now, if you wanna see if you're really a loving person, put your name where it says love. Right? So Mike is patient and kind. I hope my wife's not reading this, right? <laughs> Mike does not show envy or both. Uh-oh, right? And so... Now listen, I don't wanna be the only one feeling conviction, so you put your name there so you can feel some conviction. <laughs> All right, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. Oh, man. <laughs> Woo. Or resentful. How many of you guys are thankful for the blood of Jesus here, right? It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, love never fails. Now, you, you look at that, you, you, you might be saying, there's never in a million years can I ever do that. Well, you're right, neither can I. But Jesus can, and Jesus did. And who lives in you? Spirit of Christ. So in sanctification, as we cooperate and yield and submit, guess what? He lives his life through us and we actually start showing these things, these characteristics in increasing measure and our marriages just start going like this because we're so good. No, 
because Jesus is so awesome. And so in closing, as we think about the fact that sanctification sometimes means suffering and trials, I'm sorry, tribulation sometimes means trials, we really need to cooperate and be willing to suffer in God's will. Did I, did I already say, I can't remember because all the services, but I'm not talking to you people who may be out there who are choosing to disobey God and you're in a lot of, prob, in a lot of trouble. That's a different sermon, right? And so we're talking about people who love the Lord, living for the Lord, but they're just experiencing trials. Just accept it. Know, know that God is in control, suffering God's will. Die to your old life and embrace your new life. Stand out as a Christian. Accept persecution. I hope it never comes to this in our lifetime, but if it does, whatever it takes to glorify God, even martyrdom, and pray for love and serve one another. If we'll live like that, one day we're gonna hear those immortal words, well done, good and faithful servant, amen? <laughs>